Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Blessed Are the Peacemakers. A.J. Musty, militant, radical, pacifist. Today's music comes from the 1955 album Goodbye, Mr. War by Ernie Lieberman. This is the first track on the album, Spring Song. A.J. Musty was referred to throughout the world as the American Gandhi, and he's probably best known, if at all, for his leadership of the peace movement in the post-war era. But he was also one of the most influential labor organizers of the early 20th century. Our guest for this hour is Leela Danielson, author of American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. Danielson is a professor of history at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, and she joins us by telephone from her office. A.J. Musty was a pacifist preacher who lost his pulpit during World War I, an organizer of the Lawrence, Massachusetts textile worker strike of 1919, a pioneering labor educator at Brookwood Labor College, and the founder of the American Workers' Party, which sought to create a Marxist-Leninist movement as militant as the communists, yet thoroughly American in its culture. After turning back to Christian pacifism in 1936, Musty became the beloved elder statesman of American pacifism, mentoring leaders of the civil rights movement and the new left. We find Musty at the center of most of the radical actions and social movements in U.S. history in the first half of the 20th century. And it's because of this that he offers us an opportunity to reflect upon the pertinent activist question, what is to be done? Surely a question many of us are asking today. And now, blessed are the peacemakers with Leela Danielson on Interchange on WFHB. Oh, I just want an ordinary spring With people laughing just because it's spring Let's have a celebration with folks from every nation Cause it's great to be alive in the spring. Leela Danielson, welcome to Interchange, and happy Labor Day yesterday. Hi, what, Doug. Hi, welcome to Interchange. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, so we heard a bit uh, about Musty at the beginning. It's got a long life, eventful, and we could spend several shows on many of its aspects, but I'm sure he's a figure unknown, untaught, in our secondary schools, and even likely rarely mentioned in higher education. So let's start with a bit of biography, okay? Sure. Well, you did a great job with your opening in familiarizing um, your listeners with him. I'll just give a few more details. Um, Even though very few people today have heard of A.J. Messi, he was well-known during his time when he was a public figure from about the 19-teens through 1967 when he died. And really... um, he was probably one of the most influential radical activists in the 20th century. Um, the length and scope of his, of, his, of his activism is really extraordinary. Um, he, was, he played a critical role really in all of the most important social movements of that era. So the struggle for civil liberties, the right of conscientious objection. Um, as, you, as you noted, he was very active in the labor movement and in the secular left in the 19. 19- 20s and 1930s, 
And then he really became the head, the informal head of the peace movement, and he was quite innovative in Americanizing Gandhian nonviolence for um, and, and really instituting it in the United States. And he really became a mentor to the civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King. And then um, he was also a leader of the anti-nuclear movement and the movement against the war in Vietnam. So he had he headed the spring mobilization um, against the war. Um, he was the one who sort of pulled it together. Um, so he really was uh, quite a remarkable figure and one who um, who was active just in a broad range of important social movements. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing life, but let's let's go back further than that even. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, who, right. who how how do we how do we get Leje Musty? Where does he come from and and what's his background like? Well, you know, that was a real mystery for me because um, uh, he his family immigrated from the Netherlands in 1891 when he was 6 years old, and they were part of the Dutch Reformed Church, which is a very conservative church or at least yeah, still is fairly conservative. Um, strict Calvinist, um, very suspicious of the outside world, um, a very tight-knit. And so the question was, how does this young man who comes from this essentially a conservative ethnic subculture become this great modern uh, political activist, you know, with, who lived in New York City and was active in so many uh, different social movements? And so... The way I tried to unpack that question or answer that question was to remember that he was part of communities, right, to kind of place him within his social historical context. So there's a a number of things to get out of this, but I'll mention just a couple. Um, One is that he did come from a working-class background. And so, um, you know, his father was an unskilled factory worker in Grand Rapids uh, furniture factories, Musty worked with him there. So he was very familiar with the world of work, the world of immigrants, um, and so forth. And so that's um, why he's going to feel very at home with the labor movement of the 19-teens and 1920s and 1930s, which was a largely ethnic movement, at least in the big cities. Um, And then the other thing was that he came of age at a time. He may have been raised and ordained within this conservative church, but he ended up um, in New York City for his first pastorate. And he was able to take classes from uh, uh, folks like John Dewey at Columbia University. He heard the great William James speak on several occasions. And all of these uh, philosophers were talking about a new approach to life, where you don't just take things as true, you know, you don't believe in dogma, but the idea is that you find truth and meaning through action and experience. And so that is really helpful for kind of moving him toward a more modern worldview and helping to kind of break, um, break up the kind of conservative um, ideas that had dominated his thinking um, since he was obviously a child. Mm. Um, so I think that was really important. Uh, the other thing that's really important is uh, liberal Christianity, which he comes to embrace, um, the, the social gospel, um, at the time, really emphasized the importance, like the pragmatists, that you realize your ideals in action, right? That you need to be in the world. And so I think he takes from that um, this sort of flexibility, this ability to change. And so um, as he's confronted by certain world events, like World War I, um, the question of who to vote for, um, this 
new way, this more modern way of thinking is very, um, very much influenced him. Hmm. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. We're speaking with history professor and author Leela Danielson about her book, American Gandhi, A.J. Musty and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century, a book that examines the evolving political thought and religious views of Musty in the context of the U.S.'s rise to global superpower. So Musty is in New York. He's uh, he's starting to get into the mix uh, of the labor movement there. Is that is that what sort of pulls him in? Is just being sort of in that environment. Well, you know, he does become a socialist um, in the 19 teens while he's still the head of this uh, of, a, of a reformed Calvinist church. I would say that uh, what really, but but one thing that's really important to understand about the 19 teens is this is the height of the progressive era, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really that unusual for the left wing of progressive of progressive at progressivism to be socialist. Like nowadays, we think of that as kind of, you know, this foreign ideology. But at the time, it was really the homegrown American, um, Eugene Debs sort of socialism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what really helps to push him to the left is, uh, first of all, he breaks from the Reformed Church, and he moves into a liberal congregation um, outside of Boston. And um, it was very common for people in the 19-teens, as the European War was starting, to be against American entry in the war. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes familiar with all these peace activists and so forth. And, um, and then when President Wilson declares war, he sort of has a choice. Most peace activists and pacifists decided to kind of damper their ideals um, in order to hold on to their pulpits during World War I because it was a very conformist, War, you know, um, there was this is the time of the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, so you could really get in trouble for being against war. But Musty, one of the things that is distinct about him is he always stuck to his conscience. And so when he had decided that he could not reconcile war with his religious convictions, he, you know, resigns from his pulpit, and then really, in a sense, the context makes him a radical, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was so. Uh, you, you could get in so much trouble for for being anti-war, and um, and so that kind of he sort of becomes sort of a persecuted figure and really comes to feel that this is problematic. Um, he joins the nascent American Civil Liberties Union, but he also starts kind of exploring this question of how can um, of how can what's the best way to be a Christian? How should I apply my ideals in practice? And the great question of the time, of course, was the labor question. You know, there was, um, you know, that was sort of mm-hmm. the era of the labor question. And there was a huge strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, involving 30,000 textile workers. And he decides to explore how he may be of use in that situation. And that's when you really see him propelled into radicalism. Mm, so the strike itself, the Kansas textile mill strike of 1919, is really his first uh, foray into labor organiz- organization? Absolutely. And um, so he goes into this situation. There's 30,000 textile workers who are on strike. Um, many of them, their first language is not English. There's about 12 different nationalities. Every time you have to print a strike notice or whatever, you have to print it in 12 different languages. Mm. And so... Uh, he enters that situation, and he just wants to be helpful, right? right. But what happens is uh, he, one of the things about Musty that really distinguishes him, I think, and helps to account for his long career, is that he, on the one hand, was charismatic and had this sort of revolutionary vision 
But on the other hand, he had tremendous organizational skills. You know, he had really um, uh, very much somebody who could organize and strategize and so forth. And so he, with those skills, the strike um, committee immediately elects him head of the strike. Mm. So he was the head of the strike and um, leads it to uh, success. And, and it, it's a quite violent strike. He's jailed. He's beaten up by police. So are the other uh, striking workers. But um, then they go on to organize the Amalgamated Textile Workers of America, um, which was an industrial amalgamated union um, uh, that lasted just a couple of years. But mm-hmm. they, they were able to sign out. a number of contracts at first. Yeah, they formed that out of that strike? They did, yes. Okay, and that's again in Kansas. And you said 30,000 workers in Lawrence, Kansas. No, this is Lawrence, Massachusetts. Oh, Lawrence, sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> it's good to get my geography right. <laughs> so, so Musty is essential in that in that environment. Oh yeah, yeah. and and um, you know, the, you know what happens is that uh, um, this strike is. I mean, the, the 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 union is ultimately defeated because there's a a terrible red scare after World War One, right. um, and so you know. Uh, Unions are broken up, and the state is sort of helpful in that with by arresting radicals, you know, for seditious activities and so forth. And they really undermine the labor movement. But um, what happens is that because he becomes part of the Amalgamated Textile Workers Union, it's in New York City, he gets to know Sidney Hillman, who's the head of the American, uh, Amalgamated Clothing Workers. He get, becomes familiar with the folks running the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, so he's just sort of in the hotbed of labor radicalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, pretty amazing that it really sort of begins there and uh, that he will go on to sort of lead so many of these kinds of organizations. One thing I want to talk about when we get back from a break is is the Brookwood Labor College as well, which happens around this period also. But as I said, it is time for a break, uh, and we're going to listen to another song from Ernie Lieberman off of Goodbye, Mr. War. This is Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier. Stay tuned for more on the radically pacifist A.J. Musty when Interchange returns on WFHB. Oh, Johnny dear has gone away. He's gone afar across the bay. Oh, my heart is sad and weary today since Johnny has gone for a soldier. Shul, shul, shul Time can only ease my woe since the lad of my heart from me Turn a mill 
Support for WFHB comes from The Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Blessed Are the Peacemakers, and my guest by telephone is Northern Arizona University Professor of History, Leela Danielson, an expert on one particular peacemaker, A.J. Musty. She's the author of American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. We went to the break. We were talking about A.J. Musty and his involvement in the Lawrence, Massachusetts textile mill strike of 1919, and that really catapulted him into a leadership position, which surely he he found he was successful in, and it probably, I assume, kept him there in, in that space for the rest of his life. Uh, but I wanted to also talk about the Brookwood Labor College. Leela, if you don't mind, can you tell us about that? Well, sure. So um, with the uh, Red Scare and the sort of employer counteroffensive against unions, uh, the um, labor radicals and other progressives in the labor movement were sort of confronted with several problems. One is they have a very hostile state, right? The state is against them. Mm -hmm. Um, The other problem they have is that one of the things they discover is that workers were often really good at striking, but not very good at being union members, right? Um, Also, there was sort of the growth of kind of an underground communist movement um, because with the... the, the, um, Third International, and so forth. So you've got um, you've got a lot of problems going on, and then finally you have the problem of the American Federation of Labor, and the American Federation of Labor um, was a conservative labor federation, and it really dominated the labor movement. It, it didn't believe in organizing unskilled workers. It wanted to organize strictly by craft. It believed that the movement shouldn't be too political, and so forth. And, um, so. Musty wasn't alone among progressive unionists for with uh, was wondering what do we do with this problem or these problems, and so many of them turned to workers' education um, as a way to kind of um, I develop uh, union leadership to um, foster idealism and militancy and um, and a spirit of experimentalism that they hoped would help to push the labor movement to become more open-minded um, instead of being, as Musty put it, ideological prisoners of the past. Mm. Um, and so he, Musty, and other labor progressives uh, um, and pacifists helped to found uh, Brookwood Labor College as a residential school for workers. And um, this was really for uh, seasoned organizers to come and um, practice, you know, deal with certain problems they confronted, but also to deepen their knowledge about 
um, industry, about theory, and so forth. But it was really the, the center of a broader movement for workers' education that sort of swept the country in the 1920s. Mm, I like so much uh, this again, uh, doing shows like this. It's one of the things that I, you kind of miss some of these things having gone by the side, right? Uh, work, worker education as, as a counter-hegemonic and producing working-class meaning and knowledge, I think you say in the book. And uh, one thing about this, too, is a focus on community. Union communities is important here. And I, I think that's one of the things that, again, you you make that point when you say workers may be good at striking but not good at being union community members. Um, uh, you quote Musty in your book that when labor undertakes to write it write and produce its own movies to do its own radio broadcasting, then it gives notice that it expects to do its own dreaming henceforth. I love that very much. Oh, thank you. Yes, that was the thing that was so remarkable about reading, going through these archives and reading Brookwood's um, newsletter and all of these publications and um, correspondence is that they were using education to build what you might call a cultural front mm -hmm. against capitalist culture, right? And so, and they're doing this at the same time that Antonio Gramsci is coming up with his ideas about cultural hegemony and so forth um, in, um, in his Italian prison notebook, in his prison notebooks. Um, but yes, and that's why I really like that you're playing some music, because it was very important to them that culture not be given to workers, but that workers should affirm their own values and build their own cultural institutions to reflect that. Um, so they very much believed that labor had a point of view, and um, and that um, it had different kinds of values than the dominant culture, the sort of middle class culture that was so, you know, hegemonic. Um, so yeah, I, I really that was one thing that I found that I really thought was important. Hmm. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. We're speaking with history professor and author Leela Danielson about her book, American Gandhi, A.J. Musty and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. Um, so Musty is obviously someone that we should know about, someone that, as you say, was well known in his time. At the end of your book, though, in the epilogue, you write that though there's much written about Musty as a peace activist, and that we'll cover obviously later in the show, and an advocate for nonviolent action, there's virtually no historical memory of Musty as a labor leader. And this is a question constantly that we run into here. The fact that we do these shows is because I know nothing about it, right? I come to it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this history is so rich and amazing. And, and yet it's, it's, it's virtually been erased. And you make this, uh, this point that we, we do know civil rights leaders. We do know many other kinds of activists, but labor has been virtually erased, Yes, that is absolutely true. I mean, really, since the 1970s, I think labor, the working class, has been rendered invisible within the dominant culture and in the stories we tell about ourselves as Americans. And it's a real tragedy because, um, because uh, it, it means that we don't have historical memory of these folks and of the movement they built that really did transform American institutions for a while, right? You know, they helped to lead to the New Deal state, which, although imperfect, did provide collective bargaining rights for workers, did offer some modicum of Social Security and so forth. And that all came with a from, from a struggle. Hmm. So um, I think, and then, and then you also have a model of, you know, the way things could be or how they could go, how, how we can resurrect that today. Because in many respects, I think, most of us would agree that we're living through a new Gilded Age, right? Mm -hmm. We're sort of back in the 1890s or maybe in the 1920s when Musty was trying to revitalize the labor movement and make it more militant. Um, you know, very low rates of unionization, um, 
a very little sense of class, like of, of, of being a working class, right? Um, just that everybody sort of sees themselves as sort of middle class. They don't have right. that kind of... Um, sense of themselves as workers. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, let's uh, ask a question about uh, like his models, and he turns at one point, I guess he turns in his own study to Marx and Lenin uh, in in the 30s. Is that right? And and these are certainly not examples of, of Christianity nor pacifism. So where did, how did he get from uh, uh, his sort of Christian and pacifist uh, uh, perspective uh, to Marx and Lenin? Well, I think the context of the Great Depression is really important. Um, there's a famous book by the historian Irving Bernstein, um, The Turbulent Years, to describe the early years of the Great Depression. And there really was, you know, there's uh, unemployed workers agitating in the streets. There's a real sense that capitalism is about to collapse. And um, so uh, I think Musty gets very much caught up in that. We're think- thinking that revolution is in the air. And um, he had long been familiar with Marx, um, but the ideas of, like, of Lenin, of a vanguard party and so forth, begin to sort of um, uh, influence him as well. And so he had long held that like, the way to organize workers, for example, is through their experiences, right? You, it's, um, you organize around the concerns that they have, um, and you build up sort of working class consciousness through their actions and experience. But he starts to become more dogmatic. Um, in like around 1933 um, and, and so forth, this idea that, well, that may be true, but we also, you know, we know what's right, and um, we need to sort of lead the workers out of their ignorance toward this communist society. Mm. Um, and so he builds his own uh, uh, American Workers' Party, which, uh, you know, directly competes with the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. Um, so, yes, he does go far to the left. Um, part of it also has to do with the fact that he viewed the churches as very much accepting of the status quo, as not standing against, you know, capitalism, mm-hmm. and that becomes all the more urgent of a problem for him in the face of this Great Depression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, I think it's the, what the, is referred to as the Battle of Toledo, that's May in 1934, and, and the so-called must, Mustyites uh, are involved in this? Yes, the, um, the, the folks who were in the American Workers' Party or affiliated with Musty's, um, yeah, affiliated with Musty's organization um, uh, were known as the Mustyites. Uh, and, yes, so they were involved in a number of great strikes. And a lot of people Musty trained as organizers were involved in many unions and leading them. But the Toledo Autolite strike in particular, um, uh, I may be forgetting some of the exact details because I wrote the book several years ago. Yeah, but sure. um, at any rate, it was um, and it wasn't an auto industry, but an auto parts industry, I mm-hmm. believe. And so the Musty organization was very influential in encouraging. Um, Toledo had like eighty percent unemployment. So when um, when the workers go on strike, there's this threat that the unemployed will, of course, take their jobs. Mm-hmm. They had organized all of the un- the unemployed, oh. and so the unemployed refused to cross the picket line, and A.J. Musty was there at the strike, and they win it. And this becomes, in a great battle, um, and this becomes very important to, um, in leading to the, in- the unionization of the mass industries, um, uh, what we call the industrial labor movement. Um, and this, of course, is what progressive unionists had wanted for a long time. They rejected the skill-based, the craft-based orientation of the AFL, and instead wanted to organize the workers who were unskilled and semi-skilled in these 
big industries like auto. And so once that victory occurs in Toledo, it sort of has this electrifying effect across the Midwest. And that's when you get the birth of the, uh, um, sorry, not the birth of the United Auto Workers, but the, you know, where the auto workers do their sit-down strikes and finally obtain recognition of their union. Mm. Well, I, I read here that uh, one journalist described this as the closest thing to revolution that had occurred in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Toledo was a huge battle. Mm. I mean, you know, um, we, where you have, like I said, not just the workers, right. um, you know, sort of organized, but also the unemployed organized. And there was a pitched battle. Yes, there was. Um, the company had hired, you know, mercenaries to to to. to put down the workers, and the workers fought back. Hmm. Well, we've had lots of civil wars in this country, and, and primarily against labor. Yes. Uh, so it's time for another break. This is Strangest Dream, another from Ernie Lieberman, whose daughter, Robbie Lieberman, titled her book on the U.S. peace movement of 1945 to 1963, The Strangest Dream. Stay with us for more Blessed Are the Peacemakers when Interchange returns. Last night I had the strangest dream I never dreamed before I dreamed the world had all agreed To put an end to war I dreamed I saw a mighty room The room was full of men And the paper they were signing said They'd never fight again And when the paper was all signed And a million copies made They all joined hands and bowed their heads And grateful prayers were prayed And the people in the streets below Were dancing round and round While the swords and guns and uniforms Were trampled on the ground Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is on militant labor leader and radical pacifist A.J. Musty, who's often referred to as the American Gandhi. Leela Danielson is our guest. She's the author of a book on Musty and the history of radicalism in the 20th century. It's titled, you guessed it, American Gandhi. And you didn't have to guess it because, you know, we've said the title m- multiple times before already, Leela. Um, so uh, we, we just went from uh, A.J. Musty being uh, a, a militant, 
important, uh, vibrant, vital labor leader success. Uh, the the actual labor movement seems to really be moving. And uh, but it, it's at this point that that Musty kind of moves in a different direction, right? Yes, that's right. And so um, what happens is that his American Workers Party is essentially, to some degree, with his own. Um, uh, approval uh, is taken over by a Trotskyist splinter group, and I'm not going to go into all of the details <laughs> oh about boy, that. You guys can those, read my yeah. book, but um, <laughs> what happens is that um, this experience um, includes tremendous. What what he finds essentially is that um, his new comrades are using deceit. Um, being extraordinarily sectarian, more concerned with questions of theory than getting into the action. And that sort of isn't what Musty's about. Musty, if he's about anything, it's about action. And so he becomes to feel that this sectarianism and so forth is a violation of what he calls working-class ethics. Um, It's manipulating and using others rather than trying to give the other fellow a chance. And so... um, so he begins to, to think that there's a fundamental problem here with the secular left, and that is that it seems to think that if you just change external circumstances, that you'll create better humans and a better society. And he says, you know, maybe that isn't true. And, of course, this is the context where, you know, Stalin's crimes begin to be revealed and so forth. And so his question... Um, and then, uh, and so he he's sort of having a crisis within the secular left, and moves back into Christianity. He has a, a mystical experience that 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 moves him back there. And so his question is, how can I be a Christian? How can I be a pacifist, somebody who wants to reconcile means and ends, and a revolutionary? And this is when he starts to explore Gandhian nonviolence. Mm. So uh, one of the things that uh, he wrote in 1928, this is in Pacifism and Class War, is in a world built on violence, one must be a revolutionary before one can be a pacifist. In such a world, a non-revolutionary pacifist is a contradiction in terms, a monstrosity. So uh, there is obviously a recognition that violence comes first at us from the state, from the economy, etc., and to ask people to be pacifist in the face of violence is a monstrosity. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he really maintains that critique of pacifism. One of the things about the American pacifist tradition was that it really came out of this tradition of individual non-resistance, right, or conscientious objection. So it was sort of an individualist tradition. Many pacifists were very dubious of um, labor's methods of collective action and striking and so forth. So when Musty comes back into the pacifist movement, he's determined to radicalize it, right? He remains a revolutionary. And he comes at a time when there's, a, there's sort of a leadership vacuum within the main pacifist organization at the time, um, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And so he comes in, he's elected to, to lead that organization, and he wants to transform it into a vehicle for um, a Gandhian nonviolent movement. Um, and he does this in a couple of important ways. One is theoretical and theological. He uh, writes a book called Nonviolence in an Aggressive World, where he kind of lays out the, uh, the various rationales for um, nonviolence and, and also argues that it should be sort of adapted to American culture and conditions. And then he also, so it's, it's not just a theoretical question, but it's also an organizational question. And he brings in all of these young people, Bayard Rustin, George Hauser, um, uh, I'm trying to think of others, James Farmer, right? 
um, who are very young, and he hires them as organizers, and they begin to practice the use of Gandhian nonviolence um, to challenge racial segregation and discrimination. And they do this largely in the North. They form a separate organization that Musty essentially funds called the Congress of Racial Equality. And they're active throughout the 40s and into the 50s. I mean, they're quite small, um, but later they're going to become um, one of the most important civil rights organizations. Yeah, this is one of the key things that Musty does is is, is sort of uh, seed the the civil rights movement, right, with these particular people by arresting, as you mentioned, uh, James Farmer. I think A. Philip Randolph is one of his correspondents throughout this period as well. Yes, he was very close to A. Philip Randolph um, for many years because, of course, they had been involved in the labor movement together. So Randolph, for example, would come to Brookwood and speak, and they had um, institutes on the question of the Negro in industry and that sort of thing. So, yeah, they were close close um, comrades. I mean, they disagreed at times that they were... They work together. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. We're speaking with history professor and author Leela Danielson about her book, American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. So say an essential thing that, that Musty does is recognize uh, race as a, a, a possibility to create a strong anti-war, uh, a strong anti, even maybe even an anti-state organization in some senses, the state is the, the organ of war. Mm, yes, interesting. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, because Musty was not, I mean, he definitely believed in the individual conscience against the state, particularly when it comes to militarism and racial policies and so forth. But he was never quite a libertarian or, or an anarchist. He was more of kind of a I would call him sort of a socialist libertarian, if you know what I mean. Um, I think he still believed. Um, uh, uh, I, I think he still would have believed that there probably needed to be a state. <laughs> right, um, right. He's I, concerned constantly, as you make uh, make through uh, your, the point throughout the book. He's concerned with these sort of compromises of the liberal state. Right. The the the, oh, the New yes. Deal sounds good, but it's it's a compromise, a democratic compromise with with again a state at war as much as anything else. Oh yeah, and you know one of the what happens that's so critical, of course, is the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It used to be, before the Cold War, that there was a strong anti-militarist tradition in American society. And if you considered yourself sort of a a progressive or a liberal or a leftist, you were anti-war. But what happens during the Cold War is many liberals um, adopt anti-communism as a creed um, and support more or less the containment policy. And Musty was absolutely mortified by this. Um, with the explosion of the atomic bombs, with the creation of um, mandatory conscription, um, he helps to uh, he tries to organize resistance to this um, through civil disobedience campaigns. Um, the first draft card burning actually happens, I think, in 1947 or 1948, and Musty's there along with an, a smattering of other radical pacifists. And so he really tries to organize resistance to um, militarism, to U.S. foreign policy, at a time when there was incredible public support for it. 
Well, it's one of the, the I think, endearing questions or enduring. It doesn't endear. It's not endeared to my to myself anyway. Um, the that we deal with this this war situation, right? As you note, that uh, at one point it was uh, uh, was uh, left and perhaps even American to be anti-war, and it seems to be a controversial stand uh, currently. Of course, it's always been in my lifetime a controversial stand to be anti-war, and it often becomes anti-American to be. So, uh, A.J. Musty, labor activist, American intellectual, pacifist, plausibly anti-American in our terms today. Yes, I think that's right. Um, You know, so he's not very successful at first in organizing much resistance to the Cold War because it was so popular. But eventually he helps to kind of build the anti-nuclear movement. Um, and first anti-nuclear uh, t- uh, testing movement, right, that emerges in the mm-hmm. late 1950s, and then um, also um, the uh, Committee on Nonviolent Resistance to Nuclear Proliferation and really mm-hmm. advocates for a third camp a, or a third way between the, the communism of the Soviet Union and the kind of capitalist democracy, imperial vision of that represented by the United States. Um, so he, he and he is fairly successful with that, but he does always have to deal with that question of Americanism, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, being sort of having that position sort of. Uh, makes you persona non grata within the dominant discourse. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, that the peace activism is kind of smack in the middle of the anti-communist crusade as you talk about the Cold War. Uh, the the peace activism, anti-communism are certainly entwined, and then we can add civil rights as well. There's a, you know, a peacenik is a, a pro-commie, a beatnik is anti-establishment. we got lots of ways to denigrate these groups that take these stands against uh, what is, you know, the imperial project of the U.S., right? Uh, Musty writes at this time, too, tragedy has piled on tragedy for our country and for the world because the progressives, liberals, unions, and farm organizations, which ought to be flatly opposed to the nation's war course, are so uncritically anti-Russian and so ignorant of how really to overcome communism that they support the war policy. These forces line up with the right, with reaction, with violence, though they do not mean to do that and try to make themselves believe that they do not. Oh, that's a great quote. <laughs> and that represents his position perfectly. And all of this comes to a head during the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, because, uh, of course, with the Civil Rights Movement, you think about uh, Martin Luther King, who probably never approved of the war in Vietnam, but was told never to talk about foreign policy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because that will, you know, that will undermine the Civil Rights Movement. People will think you're, you know, soft on communism. And so uh, Musty is... Uh, constantly writing to King and saying, you need to come out against the war, you need to come out against the war, but King is rightfully fearful to do so, mm-hmm. because once he does that, is, is President Johnson going to answer his phone calls anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he finally does come out, um, and, um, and, and, you know, he's condemned by many liberals for doing so. Right. Uh, and... Um, and, and the same with many uh, liberals who had supported U.S. foreign policy and who sort of see Vietnam as simply a mistake, right? Um, clearly, the intractability of that conflict proved that it represented an overall pattern, right, in U.S. foreign policy. And this is something Musty is always trying to kind of um, to communicate. At the same time, um, he's so utterly devastated by this war in Vietnam 
that he takes very radical positions, right? He oversees draft card burning, civil disobedience, and so forth. But he also knows that they're, he's not, that they're not going to end the war without figuring out a way to make alliances and build a coalition with different kinds of groups. And I would say that, um, you know, that sort of represents the challenge, right, of the left, I think, in many respects, which is um, standing your ground in your, in your views about what is right and what is just. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that it's a fairly marginal position within American society. And so when Musty is successful or has the most influence is when he is building those kinds of alliances, still staying true to his own beliefs and being honest about them and finding spaces to express them, but by the same token, also opening up lines of communication and finding places of agreement. It's time for our final break. This is Ernie Lieberman again this time with Quilting Bee, a little more fun this time, written by Earl Robinson, who also composed the music for Joe Hill, to name one of many folk compositions. Robinson also wrote many popular songs and music for Hollywood films, and he was a member of the Communist Party from the 1930s to the 1950s. Stay with us for more on radical peacemaker A.J. Musty when Interchange returns. all in pieces like a crazy quilt it's lying all apart it's lying all apart each a different color and a different form but put them all together and they keep you warm pick up the pieces let's do it right let's sew them all together make them good and tight let's have a quilting let's have a quilting let's have a great big quilting bee Support for WFHB comes from The Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for WFHB also comes from The Uptown Cafe, established in 1976. Located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Stay tuned, you're listening to Interchange, right here on Community Radio WFHB. Scared to take a chance, but get the calls a-going and you have a dance, so come let's give it just what it takes. Let's get our feet a-stomp until the ceiling shakes. Let's have a dancing, let's have a dancing, let's have a great big dancing bee. is like a mansion all of us have built to live in peace and joy to live in peace and joy the furnishings are lovely oh there's lots of room just needs a little doing with a mop and broom sweep out the rubbish that don't amount make room for concentrating on the things that count let's have a singing let's have a dancing let's have a grand and peaceful Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Blessed Are the Peacemakers. And we're talking about one peacemaker, A.J. Musty, with Leela Danielson, who wrote the book, wrote a book about, he wrote, you wrote the book on A.J. Musty, Leela, uh, uh, titled American Gandhi, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2015. Seems like a long time ago, Leela, yeah? 
Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different. It's still. It's a, it's odd how much of a different world it seems. Uh, but it's it's sad that it's three years ago. Anyway, uh, new left historian Stoughton Lind wrote that historians of the future who want to know what it meant to live with integrity in the 20th century era of wars and revolutions will very likely begin with a life of A.J. Musty. That's a that's a nice and and your book Leela is a nice place to begin as well. Thank you. Well, uh, so we went to the break talking again about uh, A.J. Musty and the Vietnam War and uh, the attempts to make peace and make coalitions. Uh, one of the, one thing that I, I we kind of have glossed over here, and, and even though it's been a part of it, the, the conversation the whole time, is Musty as a Christian, right? Musty as a, clearly a devout man, uh, as Christianity has many interpreters and many true churches. Uh, how did American Christians react to the politics and activism of A.J. Musty? Oh, that's a great question. You know, um, liberal Protestantism was really hegemonic in um, American culture up until the 1940s, and well, really even into the 1950s and the 1960s. And he was sort of part of that world. You know, if you think of figures that maybe your audience has heard of, like Reinhold Niebuhr, or you've heard of organizations like the Federal Council of Churches, Musty was really a central figure in those groups in, once he returned to the pacifist fold in the late 30s and 1940s. Many of those folks uh, identified as socialists and so forth. Um, but once the Cold War comes along, um, Reinhold Niebuhr becomes very influential in uh, sort of suggesting that um, uh, Christians have to be realistic. They have to compromise with power politics, right? And they have to support this Cold War. And that if they occasionally sort of invoke the prophetic mode to criticize the United States, that would help to kind of curb the nation's arrogance. And Musty just dissented from that completely. He always believed that, you know, um, you had to think of uh, Christian ideals as real blueprints for how society should be, right? And, um, and believed that the prophetic tradition was calling people not just to sort of... Um, repent of their sins, but to change course, right, to, to, to sort of, you know, be, uh, you know, get on the right path, you know, be against war, be against racism and exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes much more marginal within that, that world um, in the 50s and into the early 60s. But they still occasionally, you know, include him in certain kinds of forums and by the mid-1960s and late-1960s, a lot of those Protestants, the sort of liberal Cold War Protestants, um, come to sort of become, in a sense, mustyites. Mm. And um, they come out strongly against the war. They support draft resistors. And so, in some ways, he gets sort of vindicated by the Vietnam War. Mm. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, Reinhold Niebuhr there. Uh, Niebuhr is every U.S. leader's favorite Christian, right? Uh, he's, <laughs> he, he's, he's the Christian you turn to when you're happy to intervene in foreign countries, right? There's, there's definitely a, um, a war and Christian realism seem to go hand in hand. Absolutely, and it's uh, it's really a shame because there's other Christian voices out there that they could draw upon, and um, there were some real deep flaws in his thinking, and um, it's it's important to be aware aware of that. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of th- one thing that that seemed you know I, I, it's probably an error on my part, but I, I go occasionally looking for ways in which I say mm, that was a wrong turn. You know, <laughs> if we could have gone this direction at that point uh, instead of turning that way, uh, I, I feel like that about Niebuhr most of the time. 
Yes, I think that's right. I think he sort of, he, he, um, he compromised too much. And, 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 you know, it's funny, they also tried to claim him as sort of the person who influenced Martin Luther King. But, but, but Niebuhr was a gradualist on civil rights. Mm-hmm. You know, he cautioned gradualism and moderation, right. whereas um, figures like Musty argued quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. I have to, uh, I, I'm looking back through my notes here, I, 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 got, I, got, I got this, I, I think, out of a book called Rebel Against, Rebels Against War. Uh, it was a, a letter uh, to Musty from A. Philip Randolph, where he's talking about Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, a statement that she made, uh, quote, Negroes ought not to do too much demanding, uh, talking about gradualism. Yes. yes. Musty was not a gradualist, right? <laughs> right? He said when, you know, I mean, just as, as Martin Luther King did, right, that right. you can't tell another man or woman to delay their freedom. Uh, when is the time, right? When is the time, right? Right, right. So uh, it, it's, you mentioned that Musty is popular with the new left, and uh, I always have to remind myself, what's new about the left versus the old left? Oh, sure. Well, there's a couple of things, but one is I would say that the old left was really organizing around labor and the working class, um, and that was sort of their focus and, and sort of attacking capitalism and so forth. The new left is a little bit different. It tends to organize around marginalized groups. Mm. It believes in sort of direct action, spont- spontaneity. It's sort of anti-bureaucratic. It's, it's critiquing the state as well as um, uh, capitalism. So, uh, so Musty really becomes a, a beloved figure because he's taking action all the time. He's always putting his body on the line. He sort of exemplifies uh, what the new left was all about, right? That you sort of take action, you, um, you become real and authentic through, um, through, through action. Mm-hmm. And, he was, and he was, the other difference is that uh, the new left is anti-anti-communist. They thought that that discourse of anti-communism was limiting and Musty, too, was anti-anti-communist. He thought that that whole, even though he didn't agree with, that, uh, with, with um, you know, sort of Soviet-style communism, he thought that the paradigm of the Cold War was absolutely devastating for reformist and radical projects. Mm. So uh, I often wonder if the terminology matters very much here or, or if, it's, if, it, if it matters quite a bit, right? So if you're, if you're anti-war, you're not necessarily a pacifist, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think the way that uh, I've seen it defined is that a pacifist is um, is sort of philosophically opposed to violence in all cases. Mm-hmm. And that that's A.J. Musty. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was willing to sort of, you get, from that quote you gave earlier mm-hmm. about, you know, um, if you're not a revolutionary pacifist, um, you know, that it's sort of a... You're, it's sort of a uh, a, a pacifist without a revolutionary perspective is sort of a grotesque, right? Mm-hmm. A sort of contradiction in terms. So, for example, he believed that the Vietnamese had the right to vi- to struggle for their liberation in in whatever ways they saw fit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So he certainly wasn't going to tell them what to do about that, and he supported right. their struggle for national liberation. And the fact that there's an atom bomb makes uh, uh, the idea of a just war uh, uh, kind of a, a, a silly concept. Yeah, that's and that would be somebody who's sort of like a nuclear pacifist. I think they called them, where 
they, um, in the context of nuclear weapons, they were a pacifist. Mm. So uh, is there something that we can take from this uh, as we're nearing our, our, the end of the show, Leela? What's, what's the takeaway from A.J. Musty? It's some, somebody we should certainly learn about, and he's got obviously uh, plenty out there that he's written as well. I think there's a nice collection by Nat Hentoff, uh, a collection of essays that you might be able to find. I don't know if it's in print at all, but I, I know it's available in used copies. What, what, can, we, what can we take into, the, uh, into our future with, uh, from A.J. Musty? Well, I think that uh, basically his fundamental belief was that if you want social transformation, you have to believe that, it's, that, you, that it is possible to change the world and that you have to have a vision and, and ideals. Um, and he would often sort of quote Proverbs, you know, without vision the people perish. Or in more secular terms, he would say that it's not where you're from, but where you're at, right? That the crucial thing, I'm going to quote him here, the crucial thing about men or societies is not where they came from, but where they are going. So the idea was that you needed to have some sort of idealism. You needed to have a sense of what you want. Um, And, of course, idealism by itself wasn't enough. You also had to organize, be strategic, you know, do the work of politics. But that fundamentally you had to have a vision of a better world and believe that change was possible. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Well, that's our show. Thank you for joining me today on Interchange to discuss A.J. Musty and so much more, Leela Danielson. Thank you so much. I had a great time. Leela Danielson is the author of American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2015. We'll close with a last song from Ernie Lieberman. This is Study War No More. Thanks to Robbie Lieberman, Ernie's daughter, for providing us with the music for the show. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin was our studio engineer today and is our executive producer. No more. I'm gonna walk with the Prince of Peace Down by the riverside Down by the riverside Down by the riverside I'm gonna walk with the Prince of Peace Down by the riverside Gonna study war no more I ain't gonna study war no more Ain't gonna study war no more Ain't gonna study war no more I ain't gonna study war no more Ain't gonna study war no more Ain't gonna study